Hi, I'm John McDevitt. And I'm Paul Kurtz. And we are the Beer and Booze Bros. That's bros with a Z. And we're doing something new. We are hosting meetups. How about that, Johnny? Yeah, our first one is at Yards Brewery in Northern Liberties on February 9th. We would love for you to hang with us, uh, fellow beer geeks and alcohol industry pros. For more information, go to your favorite search engine and type in the Beer and Booze Bros. That's bros with a Z. Meetup. The information is in the uh, podcast show notes, too. The latest Beer and Booze Bros podcast starts now. 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 I'm John McDevitt with Paul Kurtz, and we are the Beer and Booze Bros. I just want to see the wallets empty today. Yes. Give me your money. On today's podcast, a partial government shutdown caused some headaches to the alcohol industry. The department that approves labels was shut down. And with no label approval, meant no new products going out of breweries, distilleries, and wineries. No! 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 And later on the podcast, can you imagine paying $2,500 for a bottle of beer? It happened as part of a fundraiser event at a well-known watering hole in Center City. It had members of the Philly craft beer community joining forces to raise thousands of dollars for the victims of the Northern California wildfire. How's this auction going to work, by the way? You're going to do like, I don't speak that fast, but get a couple beers in me, maybe. And big beers. They're getting bigger, a lot bigger. And they're a trend. Not talking size, but the punch it packs. And the dirt on a Quaker woman of the 1700s is dug up. An excavation of hundreds of artifacts in Old City leads to records disclosing she was arrested for running an illegal tavern out of her home. So we can't have a tavern there. He said, listen, you know, the bottles are telling the story. It's time for another episode of the Beer and Booze Bros. One of the federal offices that was closed because of a partial government shutdown, the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. Workers there approve beer, wine, and spirit labels for market. But that process was corked, and the new small batch releases were not allowed to leave the production facilities. So we decided to see how it was affecting small breweries and distilleries, such as Manitani Stillworks Craft Distillery out of Pottstown, when they were in the thick of it. We spoke with Art Etchels, the manager of the Stillery's Tasting Room in South Philadelphia. We're just trying to get some clarity of what's going on, uh, you know, partial uh, government shutdown, mm-hmm. and that's certainly affecting you guys. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, it's not as bad as not having a paycheck, but it does put a little crimp in some of our planning for 2019. Uh, we have to get a federal approval for all labels, and that's part of the Treasury Department, and they've been furloughed, so no approvals, which means no new products. Why can't you market it? What, what normally happens is uh, we, we get a uh, label designed. or certain things we have to have on there, the government warning about uh, abuse of alcohol and, and, what, and its downside been also that we're not promising that it's something it's not. It's not some wonderful elixir or uh, going to keep you young forever. So those things we can't do. But we usually get through it and uh, we'll wait. It may take like two, three weeks between our submission and when it's reviewed and then maybe a round or two of revisions and then we're given the federal approval and then we get those labels made, slapped on the bottles, the spirits in the into those bottles and then into the boxes and out to out the door to everybody else. Yeah, so with that office closed, you can't obviously do that. So what were you going to release or what are you hoping that you can release? 
Sure. So we have uh, three spirits planned uh, for a February release. Uh, that is a, a rum and a gin and a whiskey all after they've gone through the regular process, we've taken them and taken these uh, big old port barrels and we've put it into them and you get a, uh, adds another layer of flavor, some uh, tannins, a richness from the port that gets translated into those spirits. So this was going to be our first triple release that we were going to do three different spirits. Uh, and the fun of that would have been, or will be eventually, whenever it does happen, is that uh, you know you could taste them side by side and see what the port does to each of those spirits. But there is a downside to it because there's a lot of people involved and you've got things planned. Yeah, absolutely. So we have everything from uh, we want to have uh, release parties and have live entertainment and food trucks and all those have to be scheduled months in advance so it becomes a little more difficult to uh, figure out exactly what you're going to be doing what, when we were trying to be full speed ahead in 2019. I know you're not in the beer business, but like, mm-hmm. just to help me understand it. So I like, am a consumer. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> so like your old, you know, it, 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 your Buds and your, your your Millers and your Coronas, they're going to, you're not going to have to fear because they're going to still come because right. those labels have been approved a long time ago. Yes. It's these specialty sure. batches, brews yeah. that are coming out and because they haven't been approved. Right. That's why. Yeah, so you're not going to see a double doink ale coming out anytime soon. Uh, where that, that seemed to be like a whole cottage industry. The Eagles winning the Super Bowl last year, and everybody had a beer that everybody. was tied into into the, the feel-good nature of that. Now you're not going to necessarily see any of those things happen. One of the things we have on the horizon is the anniversary whiskey and an anniversary whiskey you have an anniversary party and with an anniversary party you have a lot of people coming out we're gonna have to scramble to do something else so we might be trying to get rid of some old bottles of things or i don't know like what is your anniversary uh we we're a distillery we have a lot of anniversaries but the one <laughs> the one we uh, focus on is in april which will be our fifth anniversary which is a big deal to uh to any business i feel but especially to a distillery is once you get to four and five year old whiskeys that's when people start to really take note so these are the things that we expect to also what, like win medals and uh really put us on the map so thank you very much appreciate yeah. it Art. thank you thank you thank you Art. Yeah. pleasure to meet you I want to get a little ambiance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, can we take a picture? A Center City restaurant bar held a beer-based fundraiser for the victims of the Northern California wildfires. A special guest from a well-known California brewery flew in for the event. How's this auction going to work, by the way? You're going to do like... I don't speak that fast, but uh, get a couple beers in me, maybe. <laughs> All right. Twenty-two fifty. Going once. Come on, Bernie. Going twice. He's running away. So, $2,250. Tom Peters, owner of Monk's Cafe in Center City, was auctioning off one of three Jeroboam's. It's a three-liter bottle of Sierra Nevada's Celebration Ale. The day-drinking event was a fundraiser for Sierra Nevada's Campfire Relief Fund. Who is here, Tom? Like, who are, I, saw, I saw some uh, heavy hitters in the industry come in. <laughs> well, Susie Woods is here from Allagash. 
Kurt Decker from Second District, uh, Megan McGuire from uh, Oma Gang. We just have a lot of people coming through. We have a lot of people from beer distributors, and of course, we have a lot of people from Sierra Nevada, with most importantly. And we have a lot of you know concerned people as well. That, yeah, regular folks that yeah. enjoy yeah. good beer and, and, and a good cause. We are the city of brotherly love. Absolutely. I just want to see the wallets empty today. Yes. Give me your money. Special guest Brian Grossman of Sierra Nevada flew in for the event. He's the son of Ken Grossman, the founder of the brewery. The firestorm came close to the home-based brewery in Chico, California. Many of its employees' lives were turned upside down. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately in, in early November, um, the campfire broke out in Paradise, California. Paradise is the next community over to Chico where our, our home-based brewery is. It was, was devastating. Um, a lot, a lot of loss of life. Uh, the fire came through at uh, such an intense speed, miles and miles. I, I believe the number was almost 18 miles of gridlock traffic. So people were truly having to run uh, for their lives. Uh, I mean, we just saw the pictures from here, and you know, just just the like the the videos and like the, on social media and people praying, singing, kind of just not even knowing if this is the day that they die. I mean, it was that severe. Yeah, uh, it was uh, full tragedy. Um, people lost everything. I mean, uh, the fire moved so quickly that they couldn't grab anything. Um, so we opened up our gift store to just give people a clean T-shirt. Uh, you know, we were literally giving away t-shirts and sweatshirts for any victim that, that needed because they had nothing i mean and, and these flames were very close i mean you had a lot of employees at, at, that lost everything we had about 12 percent of our workforce lose everything 12 percent that's that's unbelievable yeah so my sister uh, and my parents were both evacuated uh, because of the because of the fire they they thankfully didn't lose anything but the lower part of the fire was a few miles away from the brewery um, and you know, thankfully the wind cooperated with us and it pushed it uh, Northern California's a big agriculture area so the, the way the fire pushed it was thankfully into more ag land than into residential but it was close, it was scary on a previous episode, we talked about resilience beer brewers around the country uh, brewing the Sierra Nevada beer with ingredients donated by suppliers to make the IPA with proceeds going to Sierra Nevada's Camp Fire Relief Fund. We ended up signing up just shy of 1,500 brewers across the U.S. at an average of nine barrels a brewer. Um, and you know, if everyone does what they say they're going to do, Using an average pint price of five dollars, this is a generic term. Our hope is to raise fifteen million dollars. Um, and and, and yeah. So so we're we're calling this sort of the second responders. So you know, the first responders, you know, thankfully they're there for sure. Um, but you know, once the fire's out, now the real work also begins. Paradise was a town that was entirely on septic systems, so there was, all the septic systems were destroyed as well, so the soil needs to be amended, there's no power, there's no water lines, there's no you know, sewer systems, so now the real sort of work begins, and, and there's going to be holes, uh, you know, FEMA's going to do the best they can do, state governments are going to do the best they can do, but 
Uh, the point of the, the Sierra Nevada Campfire Fund is to sort of fill in these gaps uh, as much as we can. And so resilience was that like so all the uh, brewers, all the breweries that are partaking in making it uh, throughout the country. Is there you give them the recipe? Is that how it works? Yeah. So actually, I was I was walking around Chico and and you know it was a humbling experience for everybody, of course. Uh, but the one thing that you could say is that these people are very resilient. And uh, when we originally said, oh, well, that's the, that's the term we need. Um, so we originally started this idea with a T, resilient, and it went to resilient. Um, but, uh, but we put a recipe out there and said, hey, guys, you know, brewers, this is what we're brewing. Brew something close to it. And some people took liberties, of course, but all of our suppliers donated all the ingredients. Um, and then our retail partners, obviously, you know, people like Tom are doing these fundraisers, and you know, we're trying to help out, you know, help out as much as we can. We actually combined our fund as well with the, the quarterback for Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers, uh, is, a, is a local as well. So he had a fund going. Uh, so we combined sort of our efforts with the, the and my sister Sierra is leading the Sierra Nevada efforts in this in this collaboration. Uh, but now we have ours, it's called Beat Strong, which is a collaboration of our fund, uh, Aaron Rogers Fund, and, and the North, uh, North, uh, North Cal Community Fund as well. So. And how about this? $16,000 was raised at Monk's Fundraiser. If you'd like to donate, just go to SierraNevada.com. What was it like growing I mean, you're second generation now. What was it like growing up in, in the Sierra Nevada family? I mean, Sierra Nevada is the... How would you classify Sierra Nevada? It's the granddaddy of... Uh, oh, yeah, certainly the pioneer. Yeah. You know, Ken, Ken is uh, the, the craft beer pioneer, yeah. with, uh, hands down. And, but he brews beer with... Uh, intention and integrity and not everyone does that so he does it everything about the Grossman family just just you see integrity in everything they do and these are the people I want to associate with yeah. like what age were you did you realize I'm going to do this too oh you know growing up people ask me what it's like you know I don't I don't have a anything to compare it to right so to me it was just my childhood and Ken was my father and um, uh, the relationship with the brewery has changed over time for sure growing up uh, we referred to the brewery as the fourth child I've got two sisters myself and, and then the brewery um, you know it required a lot of time energy effort for my father uh, for it to be successful so you know, my, my mom was good about bringing us to the brewery, and my dad was good about stopping what he was doing. But to me, the brewery was always this very positive thing. It's because that's where my dad was. And, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for out. Yeah. So, John, when we're hanging out, I, I like to start things off with something low, ABV, drinkable. But you, on the other hand, like a like a big beer first. Why is that? Yeah, it's kind of like a, a, a stress reliever from work, really. I mean, it's like it kind of just melts the tension away. Mm-hmm. So a kick in the head melts the tension away. It's a kick that has a, a, a nice kick. kick. Yeah, yeah. 
I love big beers this time of year. Uh, I, I really do. Barley wines, you know, quads, Belgians. Beers that are warm and soothing. But, you know, we don't overdo it, right? No, we like to taste our beers. Right. Have you noticed, though, that some big beers now are, are really getting big, like huge? Yeah, like over 10 and, and, and above. Like 14 is kind of common. Yeah. Yeah, I was in my local bottle shop recently, and I couldn't believe how many beers were in the 15% and, and up range. Crazy. So I spoke to Jeff Poland. He's the owner of El Barrio Cantina in Northampton, Bucks County, about it. The big beers well, kind of blew me away when I was going in there. I'm like 17%, 18%. Like, where, where is this coming from? I believe it's a response to market demand. It's, of course, always an interesting question where the brewers have created this demand by producing such high alcohol content beers or whether they're just responding to uh, needs of uh, or desires of customers. In some instances, I think it's probably justified by what the brewer is trying to do with the beer. I can think of a few beers that uh, one in particular I'm thinking of is the Avery Rumpkin, which is this rum barrel aged uh, pumpkin ale which to me looks more like a liquor than, uh, than a beer. We do have customers who come in and they will ask uh, I want the strongest beer you have. You know, show me something that's you know 17, 18, 20 percent. We have several others as an example. The Molotov by Evil Twin. This is a beer that uh, is in the 17 percent category. It's a strong IPA. Uh, any number of beers from Dogfish Head, the Oak Age Vanilla, which was 18 to 20 percent. And they're 16 so, ounces. And those, those are 16 ounces. They are very, I mean, uh, I for one uh, really have a, I, I can no longer drink a 16-ounce beer that's 17%. And I, I, and I don't advise, I always caution people that uh, who may not be aware when they pick up a beer that this is a very strong beer, 17% or something like that. But uh, I'm not sure it's really justified other than uh, as a way to get bombed fast. And uh, we, as I say, we do have customers who come in and ask for, show me the strongest beer. Another one here from Evil Twin is called Bozo Beer. This is a stout. And this Aptly is also, named, maybe? Yeah, well, it could be, 17.2%. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm, I, for one, do not believe you need to purchase, go seek out a beer of this alcoholic content to, uh, uh, to get a, a good beer drinking experience, one that has plenty of taste and, uh, and uh, will satisfy. All right? And there are certainly plenty of excellent beers that are five, six, seven. The Belgian ales range anywhere, and, and arguably these guys are the, are, the, are the most knowledgeable and most experienced brewers on the planet, range anywhere from 5 or 6% to maybe 10% or 11% for a, a, a triple or quadruple. quadruple. But there's, it's, hard, there's hard, it's hard to make an argument for alcohol just for alcohol's sake. And, and that's not something uh, I would try to do. Some brewers apparently take advantage of that. but um, yeah, And yet here they are. They're on the shelves, they and, and, and they're selling. Uh, how are uh, they selling? They do sell. They're, they don't sell to everyone, but I can think of uh, one or two customers who routinely purchase the Molotov and seek that out. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's a significant uh portion of the of our customer base at this point who uh when did this when did you start noticing this and and do you think it's going to be a thing for a while yeah there's been there's been some talk of even stronger beers emerging uh, in the 20 percent plus category and there are a few already out there we don't happen to have any of them but there are beers already pushing 22 and 25 percent which in a 16 ounce beer is an enormous amount of alcohol how, how do they bang up the ABV that high 
essentially they add more material for the yeast. The yeast trans essentially consumes that into alcohol. So you can, in, in principle, there's no limit to how to how much alcoholic uh, content a beer could have. Um, uh, it, I'm not a chemist, but I suspect there is no practical limit to that. If one wanted to produce a beer that was 50% ABV, it probably could be, it probably could be done. Especially there's been a new trend in IPAs called Brut IPAs, and we have some of them. These are so-called bone-dry IPAs that taste more like hoppy champagnes, and this has been made, by, uh, made possible by using an enzyme to pre-digest some of the more complex sugars, uh, I think it's an amylase enzyme that uh, is used to pre-digest some of the more complex sugars that ordinarily are not digestible most by the yeast strains, which are ordinarily employed by by brewers. So you can pre-digest them into form so they can be further converted into alcohol. So the alcohol content can be very high. And they're also bone dry because you've converted so much of all the sugars into alcohol. And they, and they literally are compared to brute champagnes and brute sparkling wines. An intoxicating tale of a Quaker woman in the 1700s and her sordid past is dug up at an excavation site in Old City. I head to 3rd and Chestnut Streets, the current home of the Museum of the American Revolution. A few years ago, when the Museum of the American Revolution was being built, more than 82,000 broken pieces of glass, china, and pottery were excavated from privy pits. What was known was a couple, the Humphreys, owned a house on the site in the 1700s. But the artifacts being recovered were typical of objects found inside a tavern. It made no sense the people working on the project, including Rebecca Yaman, who was the lead archaeologist. She's out with a book, Archaeology at the Site, the Museum of the American Revolution. So they moved here in 1776, and what we found among the beautiful tea wares and the beautiful white plates were all these things that looked suspiciously like they were running some kind of a tavern. In fact, the guy who analyzed the glass, the bottles, Alex Bartlett said to me, called me up and he said, well, you got a tavern here. I said, we can't have a tavern there. I mean, it's Mary and Benjamin Humphreys and he's a cutler and they're a nice Quaker couple. He said, listen, you know, the bottles are telling the story. So we had to look very carefully at all of the things that came out of this one specific place and try to make sense of that. So, we, you know, to run a tavern, you had to have a license. So I went to the Historical Society, and I searched for a tavern license. And Todd Benedict, who did a great deal of the documentary research for the project, went to the city archives. And he found this fantastic 1783 document that charged Mary Humphrey on Carter's Alley with running a disorderly house. And in those days, a disorderly house was an illegal tavern, an unlicensed tavern, and there might even be prostitutes hanging around. Now, we don't know exactly the nature of Mary Humphrey's operation. However, she was charged and convicted and had to go to jail and was dragged through the street and had to do hard labor, even though she wasn't convicted of all of the charges. But they don't tell us which charge she wasn't convicted of, so maybe it was the prostitution part. We, d- we just don't know. But it's a, you know an incredible document, especially in combination with the artifacts that make it look like a wonderful Quaker household, you know, her china and her tea wares. So it, you know, it makes her, the complexity of this person living in this period, 
comes out of the archaeology. The archaeology leads us to understand what a woman could be doing, doing and you know how she combines her various roles and her various identities. And it turns out lots of women were running these taverns in Philadelphia, and more of the ones who were running illegal ones were charged than men who were running illegal taverns, wouldn't you know? Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there also uh, uh, panes of glass that were discovered? Uh, as, like, yes. Part of the first like revolutionary graffiti, right? Revolutionary graffiti. You know, we always get a lot of window glass, and you sort of are tempted to just throw it out because it's a lot of work to analyze the glass. Juliet Gerhardt, who was the person who was the head of the laboratory, um, noticed little scratches in some of the pieces of glass, and she was able to fit some together. And you can read this saying, which is, we admire riches and are in love with idleness. I think that's it. And it turns out that that saying is a saying from the Roman Cato. So, however, it's been passed down from one person to, you know, one scholar to another who want to quote it because it kind of suggests the corruption of politicians. So we think that somebody who was visiting Mary Humphrey's tavern has scratched this message on the window, either because you know, he or she is attacking the, what's happening politically or because they're displaying their knowledge, you know, how, how knowledgeable, whatever. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, and there are also names scratched on that window pane. And those, the people whose names are scratched there, we've been able to identify as people who lived in the neighborhood. So you get a feeling of, you know, the neighbors dropping by to the tavern. And incidentally, this tavern was probably nothing more than the front room in their house with a big round table. And they were probably passing around the punch bowl, or, or punch bowls, I think there are eight punch bowls came out of this particular place. And so one of those punch bowls, of course, is our most famous artifact because it says success to the Trifena on it. And we've been able to figure out what the Trifena was, what ship it was, and uh, what it carried, and where it sailed from, and all that stuff. And you can buy a replica in the shop. Which is absolutely spectacular. So this is it here in your book, right? That's it. And you piece it together, finding little shards of pottery. Right. Um, how many in, did you? Could you possibly have numbered all the little pieces that you have found in these privy pits? Of course, all of those pieces have numbers on them. They have to because they can't be separated. You know, since it's a broken piece, you have to be able to um, identify that they all came from the same place. So how many? I don't know how many pieces are in this particular no, 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 I mean in total, in the whole project. Oh, about 82,000 pieces. Wow. Yeah, but not, that's not how many vessels we've been able right, to assemble. Course. We have many fewer vessels, so it's 82,000 individual broken things. And do you know how many vessels you, you were able to I construct? I can't remember how many that's, vessels, that's but a lot good. of them are, are pictured in the book, and are, the ones that we're able to, we were able to put together. You look at those. Yeah, yeah amazing. Are, are any of these, a lot, some of these are featured in the, in the museum itself, right? Um, well, the punch bowl Football. that says success to the mm -hmm. Trifena is in the exhibit, and the other ones are being curated downstairs, so they use them for educational purposes, for lectures, for which is absolutely wonderful, because, you know, usually when we do these excavations, we analyze the stuff, we make an inventory of all the artifacts, and then we put them back in cardboard boxes, and they go to Harrisburg and go into kind of dead storage, unless somebody decides they want to look at them again, but very rarely. So what's wonderful about this project is that most of the collection is being kept right here. 
and can be looked at and can be worked with. So it's just fantastic, and they're taking such good care of it. You know, they don't let me touch the artifacts. Uh, oh my goodness! <laughs> it's, it's their artifacts now, and they're wow. watching over them. Well, that's it. We'll have another round of Beer and Booze Bros real soon. You can find and subscribe to the Beer and Booze Bros on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts. Beer and Booze Bros is on Twitter, at the Beer Bros, Z at the end. You can find me, Paul Kurtz, on Twitter, backwards, at Kurtz Paul. John McDevitt is at JM1060. Tom Rickert helped produce this episode of Beer and Booze Bros. Charged and convicted and had to go to jail and was dragged through the street and had to do hard labor. Maybe it was the prostitution part. Tom is on Twitter at T Rick. Cheers, Johnny. Cheers, Paul. Cheers.